There's an old saying that says, nothing lasts forever. Unfortunately, nothing, that is, except for fluorinated chemicals. It's estimated that 97% of Americans have detectable concentrations of PFAS in their blood. Scientists have detected pollution from these chemicals all over the world and in nearly every state. There is still no legal requirement to filter PFAS from tap water, so more than 100 million Americans today are likely drinking water contaminated with PFAS. Per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, earned the nickname Forever Chemicals because of their ability to persist in the environment and bioaccumulate over time. Breaking these chemicals would require an enormous amount of heat energy, and therefore PFAS can remain in waters, on soils, and on pavements for a long period of time. According to an estimate from a 2011-2012 U.S. National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, PFAS chemicals are present in the bloodstream of 97% of Americans. A Center for Disease Control study found PFAS in the blood samples of nearly all participants, leading to its classification of widespread exposure. The United States Environmental Protection Agency found that high exposure to these chemicals can cause serious medical complications, such as cancers, birth defects, hormone disruptions, increased rates of obesity, and negative immune system complications. But what exactly is PFAS? And why is it so difficult to remove from the environment? And how did it get there in the first place? And most importantly, can PFAS even be removed? Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Paul Westerhoff, a Regents Professor at the Arizona State University School of Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment. We will be discussing how activated carbon adsorption can remove these stubborn chemicals from our drinking water. I'll also be talking to Dr. Adam Redding of Calgon Carbon Company about the manufacturing process of activated carbon, as well as its chemical and physical properties. But first, I'll be discussing the chemistry behind the recalcitrant behavior of PFAS chemicals, how they became ubiquitous in the environment, and how they can be removed through activated carbon adsorption. I'm Craig Robinson, and this is Removing the Forever Chemical. Part 1. The History of Fluorinated Chemicals to understand what per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances are, we must first look at the history of fluorinated chemicals. The element fluorine was discovered by French chemist Henri Moissan in 1886. By the end of the 19th century, organic molecules were already being synthesized and degraded. Organic chemicals are simply a class of long-chain carbons covalently bonded with other carbon atoms, hydrogen atoms, nitrogen atoms, oxygen atoms, and of course, halogens. Fluorocarbons, or organic molecules, bonded with fluorine, were accidentally discovered by DuPont scientist Roy J. Blunkett in 1938 under the brand name of Teflon. This brand new Teflon molecule consisted of flu a fluorocarbon chain, C2F4 to be exact. This C2F4 molecule has two carbons double bonded to each other, and each carbon is bonded to two fluorine atoms. This new creation was largely based on the already existing compounds of alkanes, otherwise known as hydrocarbons. Hydrocarbons are simply compounds made of carbon and hydrogen atoms. In this case, these hydrocarbons were synthesized in order to replace the hydrogen atom with fluorine atoms. This process is known as fluorination. The fluorine atoms in this fluorocarbon chain are only able to form one bond. The carbon atoms are able to form four bonds. The carbon atoms' ability to interact with four other atoms gave this chain the potential to be extended. These C2F4 molecules could attach themselves to other C2F4 molecules to form a long fluorocarbon chain. 
This newly discovered compound was a game changer to say the least. Since these Teflon fluorocarbons are compounds consisting exclusively of carbon and fluorine atoms, they served as a forerunner to PFAS. Fluorocarbons have a number of properties that make it an attractive chemical to manufacture. From thermal stability, to water repellency, to fire retardant properties, to chemical inertness, these chemicals are nothing short of phenomenal. And the fact that these chemicals are virtually indestructible makes them even more advantageous to use on consumer products in order to extend the product's lifespan. Part 2. Chemical Properties of Fluorocarbons The indestructible properties of fluorocarbons are due to the strength of the carbon-fluorine bond, otherwise known as the CF bond. The CF bond is widely considered to be one of the strongest bonds found in organic chemistry. Electronegativity is a factor in this phenomenon. Electronegativity simply is the measure of an atom's ability to attract electrons. Fluorine is the most electronegative element on the periodic table. With its seven valence electrons, fluorine only needs one more electron to reach eight, achieving the rule of octet. Carbon, an element with only four valence electrons, is willing to help fluorine get to that magic number eight. However, since carbon and fluorine are both nonmetals, instead of transferring electrons as done in the process of ionic bonding, these elements share electrons in a process known as covalent bonding. Covalent bonding is a type of bonding that can require a lot of energy to break apart. Through this process of covalent bonding, opposite dipoles form. A positive dipole forms on the carbon atom and a negative dipole forms on the fluorine atom. As the old saying goes, opposites attract, and this relationship is certainly no exception. The electrostatic attraction between these two dipoles is incredibly strong. The strength of a covalent bond is measured by the difference of magnitude of the electronegativity values. With a significant disparity between the electronegativity of carbon at 2.5 and that of fluorine, which is 4.0, the CF bond is very difficult to break. Another factor in the strength of the CF bond is the compactness of the fluorine atom. With a van der Waals radius of 1.47 angstroms, the fluorine atom holds onto his electrons very tightly. These various factors contribute to the strength of the CF bond, which has a strength of 485 kilojoules per mole. The CF bond strength value is about 70 kilojoules per mole greater than that uh, of the CH bond, and almost 140 kilojoules per mole greater than that of the CC bond. The indestructibility of the fluorocarbon doesn't stop at the CF bond. In addition to the CF bond, fluorocarbons contain many carbon-carbon bonds, or CC bonds. Factors such as electron withdrawal by the fluorine atoms contribute to a higher than expected CC bond strength. A study titled J Molecule Structure even found that the CC bond of hexafluoroethene, or C2F6, was 7 kilocals per mole greater than the CC bond found in ethane, C2H6. Now I want to talk about the properties of hydrophobicity. Aside from the stubbornness of the CF bond, fluorocarbons are known for their water repellency and thermal stability. The thermal stability can be attributed to the strength of the CF and CC bonds. Essentially, more endothermic energy, in the form of heat, is required in order to break these bonds. Thus, fluorocarbons are quite durable in high temperature conditions. Fluorocarbons are also able to repel water. This property is known as hydrophobicity. Fluorocarbons consist exclusively of carbon and fluorine atoms. The structure of the compound is almost symmetrical, if not completely symmetrical. 
coupled with no net dipole on the compound, fluorocarbons are very nonpolar. The electric charges are evenly distributed throughout the entire molecule. One of the most well-known properties of nonpolar compounds is their like-dissolves-like behavior. Imagine a cup filled with water. Water is a very polar molecule. Now imagine mixing a little bit of vegetable oil into this cup. Vegetable oil is a nonpolar molecule with a hydrocarbon matrix. So what happens? The vegetable oil rises to the top of the cup and the water falls to the bottom. The vegetable oil rises to the top since its density is 0.93 grams per centimeter cubed. And that's less than the density of water, which is 1.00 grams per centimeter cubed. However, another reason for this behavior is that polar molecules like water cannot dissolve in nonpolar molecules such as oils. The same chemical concept applies to the interaction between fluorinated compounds and water. In today's consumer market, a myriad of products are manufactured using fluorinated chemicals. And one of these products is water-resistant clothing, such as waterproof jackets. And these waterproof jackets are designed to repel water. And for this reason, wearing one of these jackets is another example of these fluorinated chemicals in action. Let's say you put on your favorite waterproof jacket, and then all of a sudden, it starts to rain. You would notice that instead of the jacket absorbing the water like a cotton-based jacket would, the droplets of rain actually remain on the surface of the jacket. Well, in that case, you are witnessing the nonpolar nature of the jacket repelling the polar water molecules. Part 3. Discovering per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances from fluorinated chemicals. So far we have discussed the chemical properties of fluorinated chemicals, how they are almost indestructible, and also how they repel moisture. But what is PFAS, and is it a fluorinated chemical? PFAS, or per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, are indeed a type of fluorocarbon, and in fact, they were created by DuPont nearly two decades after the fluorocarbon chain used in Teflon was discovered by Roy Plunkett in the late 30s. PFAS simply is an umbrella term used to describe a class of molecules that consist of a fluorocarbon tail and a functional group head. PFAS can consist of a variety of functional groups and the fluorocarbon chain on the PFAS molecule can be any length, from 8 carbons to 4 carbons to 12 to anything in between. And more carbon atoms means a higher level of hydrophobicity. As for the functional group, it replaces one of the fluorine atoms bonded to a carbon atom. One of the most attractive properties of the fluorocarbon is its hydrophobicity. The nonpolar structure consisting of carbons and fluorines is a really effective repellent of water. And in PFAS, these hydrophobic properties remain, despite being bonded to a functional group. And this functional group can consist of almost anything. Typically, a polar functional group is attached due to its ability to repel nonpolar substances like oil. With this polar functional group head and the nonpolar fluorocarbon tail, the PFAS molecule is born a molecule capable of repelling both oil and water and incapable of breaking down. The ability for a compound to repel both oil and water is an extremely marketable characteristic. The lipophobicity and hydrophobicity of PFAS led to the production of thousands of different PFAS chemicals over the span of decades. One of the most prominent examples of PFAS is PFAS, spelled P-F-O-S otherwise known as perfluorooctane sulfonic acid. P 
PFAS is an 8-carbon chain fluorocarbon bonded to a polar sulfonic functional group, HSO3. Like its fluorocarbon relative, PFAS consists of very strong bonds, as evidenced by its boiling point of 271 degrees Fahrenheit. This C8HF17O3S molecule is found in a variety of different products, from semiconductors to firefighting foams to Polaroid photographs to sane-resistant carpets to non-stick cookware. The second most ubiquitous PFAS chemical is PFOA, spelled P-F-O-A, or perfluorooctanoic acid. Like PFAS, PFOA has eight carbon atoms and is bonded to a carboxylic head, which is a carbon atom double-bonded to an oxygen and single-bonded to a hydroxide. With the chemical formula C8HF15O2, this molecule has a boiling point above 370 degrees Fahrenheit and a melting point up to 122 degrees Fahrenheit. Other carboxylic-based PFAS compounds were created, such as PFNA with a 9-carbon chain and PFDA with a 10-carbon chain. From 1967 to 1977, an average of 10,000 compounds containing at least one CF bond were being registered with the Chemical Abstract Service each year. From 1989 to 1998, a total of over 600,000 new fluorocarbon compounds were registered with the CAS. PFAS could more efficiently extinguish fires, they saved us from the hassle of vigorously scrubbing food scraps off of pans, they even were found in a variety of medical equipment. And let's not forget, there would be no microwavable popcorn without PFAS. These chemicals were changing the American life as we knew it, and it seemed like they were for the better. But all of that was about to change. Were these chemicals too difficult to break? And what would happen if they ended up in our drinking water? And more importantly, were they safe? Part 4. Sounding the Alarm how PFAS polluted America's waters and put public health at risk. In 1950, 3M, one of the largest manufacturers of PFAS compounds, decided to conduct a study on exactly how these new chemicals would affect organisms. Like most scientific hypotheses relating to health, this experiment was first conducted on rodents. In an effort to test the safety of PFAS chemicals, 3M conducted a study on mice. These mice would be exposed to PFAS chemicals and their blood would be tested. After experimentation commenced, the scientists of 3M found something quite concerning. The results indicated that PFAS was able to bioaccumulate in the blood of mice. This would be the first of many red flags for PFAS exposure. Over the next two decades, a number of studies were performed. These studies found links between liver damage, oral toxicity, tumors, and a number of other conditions in rodents exposed to PFAS. Studies conducted with humans found similar reactions after high exposure to PFAS. Throughout the 1980s, a number of alarming results were collected regarding public health and PFAS exposure. For example, 3M workers had rising fluorine levels in their blood, whales were contaminated with PFAS in Little Hocking, Ohio, a small town home to a DuPont plant, and 3M discovered that workers exposed to PFAS were more susceptible to developing cancer. And perhaps the most alarming of all was the results of a 1998 3M study. PFAS was able to move through the food chain. Bioconcentration factor is an accurate indicator of how chemicals could potentially build up in the bodies of different organisms. 
the bioconcentration factor is simply a ratio between the concentration of a chemical in an organism and the concentration of chemicals in water. A study done by researchers from Kyoto University and Asian Institute of Technology cited the bioconcentration factor of PFOS in fish was at least 10,000. A persistent organic pollutant is simply an organic compound which remains in the environment for long periods of time, mainly due to its incredibly slow biological and chemical degradation. Much like its ability to persist in the environment, PFAS also remains in the food cycle for quite a long time. Due to the strength of the CF bond, as well as its lipophobic and hydrophobic properties as previously discussed, PFAS chemicals are able to resist biological degradation. If a cow ingests a PFAS contaminated substance, the PFAS will enter the cow's system and actually build up over time. The buildup is attributed to PFAS being absorbed by the body faster than it's being discharged. This process is known as bioaccumulation. Bioaccumulation is actually a natural process, which typically helps an organism store and retain vital nutrients in their body. However, contaminants such as PFAS can hijack this beneficial process and use it to permanently remain in an organism system, causing a variety of complications. Given the cow's inability to break down these chemicals, coupled with PFAS's ability to bind with proteins in blood, PFAS builds up in the body tissue of the cow. Once that cow lactates, Traces of PFAS could actually be found in the milk of the cow, which is eventually served to people. However, human PFAS contamination from milk is far less likely than being contaminated from drinking water. Well, at least for adults, says Natural Resource Defense Council staff scientist Anna Reed. However, for children, due to their vulnerability of exposure to toxins and their tendency to consume high quantities of milk, the risk factor for PFAS contamination increases. But how does PFAS end up in the water? Well, there are a multitude of different sources. Stormwater runoff is one of the many culprits. Remember how firefighting foams have high concentrations of PFAS? Well, these firefighting foams are sprayed on impervious surfaces, such as roads and runways, during firefighting drills in airports and military bases. PFAS, as well as other contaminants, can sit on these impervious surfaces for a long period of time. These pollutants can actually be picked up by the flow of rain as it hits the impervious surface and enters the sewer system. This stormwater, oftentimes, is recycled as drinking water. Of course, it goes through a variety of cleaning processes that include UV light exposure and reverse osmosis. However, even these widely used processes are unable to remove PFAS from the stormwater. And this is because most city and municipality water treatment plants simply lack access to the resources needed to remove PFAS. Therefore, PFAS chemicals contaminate stormwater runoff and remain concentrated after treatment processes. Given the frequency of these firefighting drills done on military bases and airports, a Harvard study found that groundwater and surface waters surrounding these sites were between 1,000 and 10,000 times the US EPA health advisory level for PFAS. The study also found that the presence of a military fire training area increased the frequency of detection from 10.4% to 28.2%. It was also found that the presence of an airport increased the frequency of PFAS detection from 9.2% to 22.2%. 
A study conducted by the researchers at the University of Minnesota found PFAS acids in 100% of stormwater runoff samples collected. The total concentration of PFAS in the samples ranged from 14.3 nanograms per liter to 96 nanograms per liter. The most prevalent PFAS chemicals were PFOS and PFOA. Another source of PFAS water contamination is unregulated dumping of wastewater into rivers, streams, and lakes. PFAS can also enter groundwater through fate and transport, a phenomenon that describes contaminants permeating through soil. Traces of PFAS can be found in animal excretion, namely due to its ability to bioaccumulate. Additionally, given wastewater treatment plants' inability to remove PFAS from water, recycled water is often contaminated with the forever chemical. The soil is able to soak up the nutrients of excretion, however, it is unable to absorb the contaminants found in waste, such as PFAS. This PFAS found in both recycled water, animal waste, sludge spreading, and other sources is able to permeate and dissolve through the soil. Eventually, the PFAS contaminates the layer of groundwater found below the surface. The same Harvard-based study previously referenced found that the presence of an industrial site increased the PFAS detection frequency from 12.2% to 46.7%. The study also found that PFOA concentrations in Washington, West Virginia were 190-fold greater than the EPA lifetime health advisory limit of 70 nanograms per liter. This West Virginian town is located near a fluorochemical production plant. The scientists behind this study, David Q. Andrews and Olga Niandenko of the Environmental Working Group, or the EWG, said in an interview with Scientific American that an estimated 200 million Americans have tap water contaminated with either PFOA or PFOS. They went on to say that these concentrations were at least of one part per trillion. Parts per trillion is a unit measuring concentration, just like milligrams per liter. One part per trillion is equal to 1.0 times 10 to the negative 9th milligrams per liter, or one nanogram per liter is equivalent to 1,000 parts per trillion. With the apparent ubiquity of PFAS chemicals in drinking water, it only seems reasonable to ask what the Environmental Protection Agency is doing to prevent further contamination. Well, the EPA has the authority to set and enforce National Maximum Contamination Levels, or MCLs for short, on any chemical deemed toxic. However, the EPA has set a non-enforceable health advisory limit on PFAS. This health advisory limit is 70 nanograms per liter. Essentially, if the concentration of PFAS in a drinking water system exceeds this limit of 70 nanograms per liter, the EPA recommends, but is unable to enforce, action to be taken. The concentration of 70 nanograms per liter is based on numerous risk assessments, some of which were conducted by the American Chemistry Council. However, researchers and scientists like Andrews and Niantenko believe that the action limit is far too high. Various researchers say that PFAS levels higher than one part per trillion, a fraction of the EPA health advisory limit, can increase the risk of cancers, hormone development interruption, and could even negatively impact children's immune system response to vaccines. The Biden administration is planning on regulating these chemicals through the authority of the EPA. These potential standards would be under the Safe Drinking Water Act, which is enforced by the EPA. 
as of April 2021, no official PFAS regulation MCL has been enacted. Part 4. Adsorption to Achieve Remediation Before we discuss how to remove PFAS from water, we should first learn about a phenomenon called adsorption. Adsorption is the adhesion of a substance to the surface of another substance. This word does sound similar to absorption, however adsorption is quite different. When the substance being attracted enters into the matrix of the substance doing the attracting, this is known as absorption. However, in the case of adsorption, the substance being attracted enters the surface of the substance doing the attraction. Think about it like this. If you pour a teaspoon of water onto a sponge, the water would be absorbed by the sponge, namely because it enters into the bulk of the sponge. On the other hand, if you pour water onto a solid, non-permeable block, the liquid was, would essentially sit on the surface. This would be adsorption. There are two main components in this phenomenon of adsorption. First, the adsorbent, and second, the adsorbate. The adsorbent is the host, essentially the substance doing the adsorbing. In the previous example, the non-permeable block would fit this definition. The adsorbate is the substance being adsorbed. In the previous example, the adsorbate was the water being poured. In most environmental engineering scenarios, the adsorbate is a contaminant that's being removed from the water. The adsorbent is able to attract the adsorbent using a variety of different chemical reactions and methods of attraction. Two main types of adsorption exist, physisorption and chemisorption. Physisorption refers to the electrostatic interaction between the adsorbent and the adsorbate. Oftentimes, physisorption relates to polarity. As mentioned previously, since like dissolves like, an adsorbent that is polar can attract an adsorbate that is also polar. This reaction is reversible due to the relative weakness of the attraction. The other type of adsorption, chemisorption, relates to the chemical interactions made between the adsorbate and the adsorbent. Given the strength of the bond, these reactions are usually irreversible. Interaction examples include ligon exchange, hydrogen bonding, and Lewis acid base reactions. Adsorption has a negative entropy value as well as a negative enthalpy value. Therefore, the system is becoming less disordered and the reaction is exothermic, meaning that it releases heat energy. A system used to analyze and monitor the amount of sorbent being adsorbed is an isotherm. The adsorption isotherm is the relationship between the concentration of adsorbate in a given solution and the concentration of adsorbate already adsorbed. One of these isotherm models is the Langmuir isotherm. The Langmuir isotherm is the adsorbed concentration in terms of the variables for the maximum adsorption capacity for an adsorbate, the affinity of the adsorbate for the adsorbent, and the concentration of adsorbate in solution. However, there are limitations to the Langmuir isotherm. It only accounts for one adsorption site, it assumes a uniform surface, and it assumes all sites have the same adsorption affinity. The Freundlich isotherm accounts for the varying affinities. The Freundlich isotherm equation is adsorbed concentration in terms of the adsorption capacity, the adsorbate concentration, and the change in affinity of the adsorbate. The linearized version of the Freundlich isotherm is plotted using the log of the concentration on the x-axis and the log of the absorbed concentration on the y-axis. Part 6. The use of activated carbon to remove PFAS from water. 
One of the most common sorbents used to remove PFAS is a substance known as granular activated carbon, or GAC for short. Essentially, this activated carbon is made out of a variety of material consisting of high concentrations of carbon. Examples include wood, bamboo, coconut shells, coal, and even peach pits. Perhaps the most important property of an effective sorbent is its abundance of sorption sites. These sorption sites on activated carbon are known as pores, and in order for these pores to be formed, the activated carbon must go through a series of chemical and physical processes. I know there are a number of different materials, coconut shell, coal, um, and all those are carbonaceous material. But if I were to run, let's say, a stream that was contaminated with PFAS through one of these materials, I don't think you know, a coconut would absorb a lot of PFAS. So regarding the manufacturing process, how are these materials turned from just raw coconut or raw coal or raw, raw bamboo into, um, you know, an activated material, something that would be able to uh, absorb a lot of PFAS or, or a given contaminant? So the, the first step in the activation process is charring, which is akin to uh, as if you're trying to smoke a piece of meat or fish where the material is heated, but it is in a, a low, essentially no oxygen environment. So it's anoxic. This is Dr. Adam Redding, the Drinking Water Solutions Technical Director of Calgon Carbon Company. Calgon Carbon Company is the largest manufacturer of activated carbon in the United States and one of the largest in the world. Calgon Carbon Company manufactures all things activated carbon. Their activated carbon products range from GAC for water treatment to volatile organic compound vapor phase absorption to wound care bandages to aquariums to even cabin air filters found in automobiles. And that heating, what that causes is a volatilization of the, the lower molecular weight, um, less tightly bound parts of that structure. So. In that process, what you're doing is concentrating the part of the structure that has the, the strongest bonds, because if the bond's not strong, it's released from the structure. Once that charring has been done, the next step is the actual activation process. And in that process, the material is heated to somewhere between 750 to 1000 degrees C, and at least in steam activation. There's also chemical, chemical activation, but I'll touch on that in a moment. So the steam activation then you're introducing steam at very high temperature, and in the presence of the carbon, the steam undergoes a process called the water-gas shift reaction. And in that reaction, uh, the steam actually breaks down into hydrogen and oxygen and then forms carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide with the carbon from the structure of the, of the um, you know, primarily carbonaceous material, you know, be it plastic, coconut, wood, coal. But it's then that carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide that act as the activating agents. And the beauty of that process is that because oxygen is not present in that otherwise, it's a very selective process. So you can think about it like a wolf picking off the weakest member of the flock or the herd uh, in that they will react with the carbon then that is also still loosely bound and very slowly create this fine network of pores. Um, if oxygen were introduced, of course, it would just combust completely. But in this very selective process, it's, uh, you could say it develop, develops a very delicate structure within the material uh, or a very defined structure where you then have the, the porous network uh, evolved or, uh, or created of, of steam activation. There's then a, a cooling step that needs to happen because, of course, you don't want it to continue to oxidize. Oxidation would cause the material to burn. It also has some impacts on the surface properties as far as adsorption is concerned. But there's also chemical activation 
where you can introduce um, activators like uh, zinc chloride, for example, and then you can uh, uh, create that material or, or um, phosphoric acid also at the, or then at a low temperature. And that's um, typically practiced with materials like wood. Um, you don't commonly see that with a coal or coconut. They're almost always steam activated. Once the manufacturing process is complete, the activated carbon is ready to be an effective sorbent. Ultimately, activated carbon relies on fizzysorption to adsorb a given contaminant, such as PFAS. The intermolecular forces between the adsorbent and the adsorbate are attracted to one another. The adsorbate is then pulled into millions of pores on the surface of the activated carbon, where it is then adsorbed. It's very important that the carbon be selected on its properties, uh, those properties most notably being the pore volume distribution, where you have uh, very small pores called micropores that um, are roughly the size of the diameter of the molecules that are being adsorbed, to larger pores, the, the middle pores, so to speak, the mesopores. These are the pores that form the network that the contaminants um, diffuse through uh, to be adsorbed in the micropores. And then you even have macropores, which are very large pores, which tend to be less consequential because almost every media seems to have a sufficient volume of those, but it is really the micropores and the mesopores that control the performance of the product. Because of the tight porosity that coconut's predominantly 95% microporous, it actually doesn't do very well and it almost has immediate breakthrough with PFAS removal versus other, com uh, excuse me, other carbons like a bituminous-based carbon where you've got this balance of porosity and they actually work quite well where you might have a difference of uh, 10 to 20 times, maybe even longer removal in the coal-based carbon versus the coconut. Various properties of a substance can serve as indicators of whether or not they would be a good adsorbent. These properties include cation and anion exchange capacities at a neutral pH, as well as the point of net proton charge. A study conducted by McGill University found that surface basicity had the strongest effect on the affinity of PFOA and PFOS. This property relates to chemisorption. So far we've discussed chemisorption and physisorption, but which drives adsorption of PFAS using activated carbon? Well, electrostatic interactions and hydrophobicity, both of which are physisorption, are the main reaction mechanisms that drive adsorption of PFAS. The hydrophobic surface of activated carbon has a strong interaction with the hydrophobic PFAS molecule. Given that the hydrophobicity of PFAS correlates with a longer carbon chain, PFAS with more carbon atoms in its carbon chain, tail, are adsorbed more effectively. So you can remove PFAS from any type of contaminated water by running the stream through an activated carbon filter, right? Well, it's not always that simple. Naturally occurring carbon compounds, which originate from decaying plants and soils, could clog the pores of the activated carbon. Ultimately, this would lower the number of open pores available to adsorb PFAS. So you can have small molecules of natural organic matter that get into the pores and occupy the same sites that PFAS could have occupied. It's like, you know, getting on a school bus, there's only a certain number of a binding sites or seats to, to fill up. And um, it's whoever gets there first sits down sometimes. So if you can keep large molecules you know, out of these pores, it allows you more surface, more sites for your targeted pollutant. So natural organic matter does two things on activated carbon. So one is it can absorb and, and as you're saying, block the, the pore. 
right? That would be like, you know, someone's, you know, your school principal standing outside the school bus saying, you can't get on yet, it's not three o'clock, right? So blocking all their seats. The other would be, you know, all the teachers get to go on the bus first and, they're, and they occupy all the seats. So you can this is Dr. Paul Westerhoff, a Regents professor at the Arizona State the University School of Sustainable Engineering and the Built Environment. I spoke with him about granular activated carbon adsorption, as well as his research paper titled Removing Per and Polyfluoroalkyl Substances from Groundwaters Using Activated Carbon and Ion Exchanged Resin Packed Columns. Luckily in Dr. Westerhoff's state of Arizona, naturally occurring carbon compounds had little interference with the adsorption of PFAS using activated carbon. Here I'm from Arizona, and so in Arizona, yes, we do have very low organic matter in our groundwater. That's not true in other places that have you know, well-developed soils and things like that. But for us, we have a very low organic carbon content, less than about half a milligram per liter. And that's because here in the desert Southwest, we have pretty old groundwater and it's been moving through soil, sandy soil for a long time. And it's really been, everything that could be absorbed has already been absorbed. So we're left with very polar material that doesn't like to absorb. So in our case, it wasn't really about, you know, the background organic carbon competing. That'd be very different. You know, you're in Pittsburgh. You know, I grew up in New Jersey. Groundwater there has, you know, 10 times higher maybe organic matter. And it would be much more important, uh, that clogging of the pores um, than we saw here in our groundwater from the Southwestern United States. So now I want to talk about the main portion of this podcast, which is Dr. Westerhoff's lab. So no two types of activated carbon are completely identical, and their respective performances as absorbent can vary quite a bit. Coal-based and coconut shell-based activated carbon have different chemical and physical properties, such as different levels of hydrophobicity and even different pore structures. And ultimately, their performance as absorbent depends greatly on these properties in addition to which chemical they are absorbing. And what people have found is, uh, you know, that a certain pore structure or pore size distribution, as well as a certain amount of oxygen on the surface of the activated carbon makes it more or less favorable for, for PFAS. Coal-based activated carbon may be a better sorbent for some chemicals, while coconut-based activated carbon may be a better sorbent for others. Simply put, performance as sorbent varies for activated carbon, and the same can be said for the sorbate properties for PFAS chemicals. No two PFAS chemicals have identical properties, given the variation of chain lengths and functional group polarities. And for this reason, the ability for an adsorbent to effectively attract PFAS definitely can vary. Dr. Westerhoff and his research group set out to find how effective different sorbents were at removing different PFAS species from groundwater samples. These sorbents included coal-based activated carbon, coconut shell-based activated carbon, as well as a different method of adsorption known as ion exchange resin. You can think of a granular activated carbon as being a top-down you know, adsorbent. That is, you start with peat or wood or coconut shell or something, and you pyrolyze and activate it, and you make pores uh, in it that have you know, kind of a low oxygen content or something else to make it you know, um, more favorable for certain types of chemicals to absorb. Ion exchange is a little bit different. You, it's a polymer. So you start with a monomer and you polymerize this thing into kind of a, a macroporous bead. So they have pore-like structures in them. 
and then you can functionalize it. Uh, you know, in this case, they put on um, the ones we used. They meet. They used amine functional groups on there, so it allows you to absorb things that are negatively charged. But it's a little bit more complicated than that because the parts of the polymer that don't have charge is kind of a, a carbon backbone. So it becomes really good for something like PFAS, which has both kind of a polar end and a hydrophobic end. Dr. Westerhoff used six different types of activated carbon adsorbents in addition to two different types of ion exchange resins. Out of the six activated carbon adsorbents, four were coal-based, identified as coal one to four, and two were coconut-based, identified as cocoa one and two. Each activated carbon sorbent tested had unique physical properties, including effective sizes, densities, surface areas, and pore volumes. The experiment utilized water samples, which were collected from six PFAS contaminated groundwater sites throughout the state of Arizona. The contaminated groundwaters previously served the public. However, the groundwater wells were in fact shut down due to PFAS contamination concerns. A total of seven different PFAS species were analyzed in drinking water, PFNA, PFOS, PFOA, PFHPA, PFHXS, PFHXA, and PFBS. PFNA consists of a carbon chain length of 9, PFOS and PFOA 8, PFHPA 7, PFHXA and PFHXS 6, and PFBS 4. Roughly half of these chemicals have sulfonic functional group heads, and the other half carboxylic. The number of molecules with short-chained and long-chained fluorocarbon tails was split quite evenly as well. The total PFAS concentrations range from 155.8 nanograms per liter to 7044.3 nanograms per liter in the samples. The concentration breakdowns of each species vary throughout each groundwater sample. Out of the six groundwater samples used, labeled GW1 through 6, groundwater samples 2 through 6 consisted of concentrations of all seven PFAS species, while groundwater sample one consists of five. In groundwater sample one, there was no trace of PFHXA. The main indicator of adsorption effectiveness was the sorbent's respective adsorption capacity Q and the ratio of final to initial PFAS concentration. The lab also used data such as breakthrough time to determine the effectiveness of a given sorbent. You put them in a packed bed, and so things absorb on the top and then, you know, as those become full, things absorb lower and lower in the column. And you, a breakthrough curve represents the concentration of PFAS coming out of the column. Uh, and, you know, depending upon the shape of that curve, you can think about how to design a full-scale system. The x-axis of the breakthrough curve is measured in the unit of bed volumes. Bed volume, often referred to as just beds, is the minimum volume of solvent needed to completely submerge a given adsorbent, such as activated carbon. Regarding the setup of the lab, lead lag columns played a major role in the collection of data. So most adsorption systems will use two sets of columns, what's called a lead column and a lag column. So you want to fill up all those absorption sites. But if you break through, and let's say you approach kind of a regulatory limit, or what you think will be a regulatory limit, um, you, you know, if you only had one contact or one bed, you need to turn it off and throw everything out, even though not all of the absorption sites are full. So what you typically do is you put on a second column to polish that effluent until you fully exhaust all the binding sites 
in the first one. Then you regenerate it. Then you put on a new one after. So it's a lead lag configuration. So getting the shape of that breakthrough curve is really critical to understanding how to size and how to operate these two columns in series. Because if you just looked at when you reached a regulatory limit, you would waste a lot of your absorption capacity in a continuous flow column. These two endpoints that we get out of these column tests, one is how many bed volumes you operate till you get to a regulatory limit, and then what is the shape of that breakthrough curve, because that allows you to design a system of columns in series to fully utilize the absorption capacity. And the more absorption capacity you use, the less expensive it'll be for you and I who drink this water. Once the data was collected, the results were analyzed, and Dr. Westerhoff found that despite differing chemistries of the groundwater quality, such as differing pH, sulfate concentrations, nitrate concentrations, and dissolved oxygen concentrations, similar patterns in the PFAS species breakthrough time was observed. It was also found that coal-based activated carbon removed PFAS more efficiently than coconut shell-based activated carbon in the groundwater samples. This could be attributed to pore structure. The combined mesopore and macropore structure of the coal-based GAC is 2.2 times greater than that of the coconut shell-based GAC. However, coal-based activated carbon had a low affinity for short-chain PFAS, thus making it a less effective absorbent in those conditions. Hydrophobicity was the main indicator of how absorbate would be adsorbed. A higher degree of hydrophobicity correlated to a higher adsorption efficiency. Theoretically, long-chain PFAS chemicals are more hydrophobic than short-chain PFAS chemicals. It was observed that long-chain PFAS chemicals were more efficiently removed compared to short-chain PFAS chemicals. Shorter-chain PFAS species broke through earlier than longer-chain PFAS species, and this trend was consistent throughout all six groundwater samples. However, not every finding matched theoretical concepts. The point of zero charge value, or the pH in which a substance has a net neutral charge, should have led to more electrostatic and ionic attractions of PFAS. However, this trend was not detected. Finally, when comparing the performance of granular activated carbon to ion exchange, ion exchanged resins on average were better absorbents in removing PFAS. However, they were considered to be an ineffective treatment option for short-chain PFAS with a carboxylic head. Here is the extended version of my conversation with Dr. Paul Westerhoff. We spoke about this particular research paper as it related to the adsorption of PFAS using activated carbon. Dr. Westerhoff, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Craig. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. The removal of PFAS species in water is a major challenge in the field of environmental engineering. How did you first get involved with PFAS adsorption research? That's a good question. So, uh, and... You know, none of these things are simple. Um, so I, I guess for, you know, the, the paper that we're talking about to hear here today in terms of removing them from groundwater is we have a center uh, funded by the National Science Foundation called the Nanotechnology Enabled Water Treatment Center. And as part of this, we have about 25 companies. And uh, one of these companies, Corolla Engineering, uh, had some of their clients who were trying to understand how to remove this thing called PFAS from groundwater. And uh, one of them had a different technology that was in for a different pollutant, but it wasn't working on PFAS. And so they came to us and uh, we had done 
a number of tests in the lab using these things called rapid small scale column tests to be able to you know, test different waters, different types of activated carbon. So there, this utility, you know, in, in Arizona was trying to find something that would work. And they didn't, they looked in, you know, what other people were doing at the time. And it was kind of, well, you should use activated carbon or on exchange, but they might not work on your water. So they really wanted to understand how was the influence of their water chemistry going to influence the removal. So I guess the long story short, this one is kind of sometimes you have the tail wagging the dog, sometimes the dog wags the tail. In this case, the that utility had a problem that they needed to come up with a solution for, and they partnered up with our center uh, to have us help them. So I'd also like to discuss how uh, the GAC compared to Ion Exchange. So in the lab, Ion Exchange significantly outperformed both uh, the coconut shell based GAC as well as the coal base GAC and the removal of PFAS in these groundwater samples. Now for groundwater sample one, I believe that that trend uh, was consistent as well as groundwater sample two, three, and six. However, in groundwater sample five, I noticed that coal based GAC removed uh, a slight higher percentage of the initial PFAS concentration when compared to ion exchange one and ion exchange two. Which factors contributed to coal base GAC's performance in the fifth groundwater sample? Yeah, so you pick this number five, right? And so if you look at, you know, in our figure one, the PFAS concentration there is over 3000 nanograms per liter. So it's much higher than these other ones. And these PFAS chemicals are summed up to that 7,000 are only the ones that were reported uh, in the water uh, and measured by that analytical technique. So in reality, there's probably three times that number of PFAS chemicals. They just kind of weren't monitored. And so some of them have other functional groups, you know, on them, but they all start competing for some of these sites. And so if there was one other chemical in here, which we didn't measure, but occurred at a high concentration, it could, you know, selectively absorb onto that ion exchange. So whereas ion exchange can be very good and very specific, activated carbon is a little bit more of the general you know, thing. It can absorb kind of everything and there's not as much competition. So you know, um, that's what I would lend the, the insight to, but you're kind of you know, astute to, to find that out, but it's, it's really related to the high concentration and the fact that we didn't really measure everything that was there and they compete for these sites in the same way that NOM competes for sites that we think that they compete outcompeted these ion exchange sites in, in that water. Two major functional groups associated with the PFAS chemicals that were studied, one being the carboxylic group and the other being the sulfonic functional group. Now, the correlation between a greater breakthrough time and a longer chain length was consistent between these two types of PFAS. However, it was found when compared to each other for identical carbon chain lengths. Uh, that the sulfonic group adsorbed better when compared to the carboxylic group in a majority of the samples. What's the chemical reasoning behind this finding? All right, so the chain length is definitely the more important, you know, of the two drivers. And that's because the chain length really for activated carbon is, you know, what lends the hydrophobic nature of it, okay? So then the question is, all right, for the same chain length, if they actually occur at the same concentration, you know, how does that head group uh, affect it? And it really just comes down to 
the polarity of the oxygens in that head group and their tendency to interact, you know, both with, sometimes we think of activated carbon as just being carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. But in reality, we've learned on, on many other absorption studies is that there are trace, you know, metals in there as well. And so there, that kind of changed the kind of localized electric configuration of these. And so we really you know, think in, in some of these, it's these you know, other impurities within the activated carbon um, that has some greater affinity for the sulfonic acid compared to the carboxylic acid. But even, you know, that's what we think on why different carbons behave differently. Other people would argue, well, it's just the carboxylic group is more polar oxygen groups than sulfonic groups. Um, but that sulfur, you know, is what's changing the electrical, you know, uh, the, the distribution of electrons within that functional group. What other functional groups are found in PFAS? Functional groups that weren't uh, part of the study are found in PFAS, and how would they react with the adsorbent of, of GAC? Yeah, and, and I, I think, you know, these are the dominant groups that I mean, most of the, you know, analytical methods have been developed for. So the, the other ones become, you know, either other neutral groups or uh, some other versions of carbon-oxygen bonding groups. And so I'd, I'd say that in terms of how they have an affinity for activated carbon is a little bit unknown because uh, not a lot of people are measuring them. Uh, you can predict some of these, but this is where I go back to something I said earlier that um, you know, we have a lot of knowledge to predict how certain functional groups on say a single aromatic ring would behave. But now when we move to this whole new group of surfactants, the influence that a head group has over chain length uh, is not well predicted yet on how it's going to affect um, you know, attachment onto kind of a, a hydrophobic surface. So I, I'd say that, you know, we can go down this road of thinking about, could you predict what would happen to the next, you know, head group? And the answer is kind of no. Um, and, and so I think until we have more data um, where people have then also spent time doing what's called density functional theory modeling that allows people to, to look at the energetics of an entire molecule, and not just the head group. Um, like you asked the question, you know, chain length or functional group. Well, chain length is almost always going to be more important than for the same chain length, the head group. But if these compounds occur at an order of magnitude different concentration, well, it's the chain length at the higher concentration that'll be removed more. So uh, I don't know if I answered your question in an explicit way, and I, I tried avoiding it because people will tend to say this functional group has results in this, you know, octanol water partition coefficient, but this doesn't work very well for uh, surfactants. Surfactants do really interesting things. You know, they move very freely on surfaces. They migrate around surfaces very differently than other types of molecules. And this is important because this is what, what drives the removal on activated carbon of pollutants it's not, you know, these are like sponges. They need to diffuse inside and chemicals can diffuse on surfaces or inside of pores. 
And, uh, you know, these surfactants that are pretty hydrophobic really like to move along the surface. So I, I think they, they really do very different things than a lot of the other chemicals we look at. It seems that hydrophobicity is a, a huge factor in the performance of, of GAC along with other uh, potential sorbents. I know that activated carbon can absorb PFAS using a number of different interaction mechanisms, such as hydrogen bonding, uh, Lewis acid-base reactions, as well as many others. However, I know the main reaction mechanism that contribute and drive this process are both uh, hydrophobicity as well as electrostatic interactions on the surface of the adsorbent. Now, how did factors such as pH, conductivity, alkalinity, turbidity, and maybe even specific PFAS concentrations um, interfere with or assist in these reactions? Sure. So one is a thing I think we need to think about how activated carbon is commonly made, and there's two basic ways. So one is you can, you know, crush down a material and then pyrolyze it. And when you do that, you actually end up with a gradient of properties from the outside to the middle of an activated carbon because the temperature, the oxygen concentration, and other things aren't equal. So some activated carbon will end up with a, a very heterogeneous structure. Another way to make activated carbons called reagglomerated activated carbons, you actually crush things down to really small, you pyrolyze them so it's pretty uniform, and then you kind of agglomerate them back together. And the idea there is you can control pore size in a different way, and you can also get a, a little bit more uniform you know, surface characteristics. So that part of your question really lends to how you make these things. Then your other part of the question was related to, you know, salts in water and pH. Um, you know, most groundwater is between about pH six and a half and eight and a half. You'll see mechanistic studies where people go much further abroad than that. But again, in this paper, we really focused at being very practical, right? It's the utility that has a certain water chemistry. And so it wasn't in this one, but, you know, if you change the pH a little bit by even one pH unit, you get very little change in performance. So there was no use for this utility to say acidify the water because they would have had to pay for that acid. So pH in this context of these natural waters in Arizona is really not important. Now the salt content is very important when it comes to some of the mechanisms of removal, more on ion exchange probably than activated carbon. So pH and alkalinity are related. So that's really kind of related to pH. It's really the amount of the chloride to sulfate ratios and the chloride to sulfate concentrations. So we spent a, a lot of time, you know, in addition to these six, we probably have another 20 waters and we've tried developing kind of models. And, you know, generally the more salt you have, the less efficient, uh, you know, especially the ion exchange becomes, but it's not um, orders of magnitude. It's less than one order of magnitude change in performance uh, in, in our waters, at least. And, and part of it has to do with what is it that ion exchange is doing? It could compete for sites, but it does change kind of the activity uh, of, of a molecule and kind of the structure of, of water and ions around these molecules. So um, for us, definitely higher salt led to lower performance, but again, less than a factor of two or three. 
so you spoke about how pH and the acidity of uh, the water sample didn't really have that large of an effect on the performance of the activated carbon and, and other sorbents. Now, despite having a larger point of zero charge range, the coconut shell-based GAC did not absorb PFAS more efficiently when compared to the coal-based GAC. Theoretically, how should the point of zero charge affect the attraction of an adsorbate? So one is, you know, if something's negative or positive and, you know, if it's attracting something of the opposite charge, right? So, you know, one would expect a positive charged surface to absorb something like PFAS that's negatively charged, right? But it turns out that, you know, the surfactants, the main mechanism is not a positive you know, point of uh, a positive surface and the, the head group. It's really the hydrophobic part of the activated carbon and the tail or more hydrophobic part of the surfactant molecule, right? So, you know, then, so I'd say that in some ways they shouldn't be, you know, uh, very related because it it's more, should be more related to the charge density or the acidity or basicity of an activated carbon. As per gram of carbon, how many negative groups or positive groups do I have rather than just a, a charge overall? And that, you know, it's uh, some of these, you know, charges are reflective of other things in the activated carbon that really reflect more upon hydrophobicity rather than is it a negative charge on the activated carbon. So more oxygen doesn't necessarily always lead to a carboxylic groups, for example, on activated carbon, which would give you a negative charge. You can just be, you know, carbon double bond to an oxygen group, which adds very low acidity, but actually changes the hydrophobicity quite a bit. So when I look at these carbons, I like to think more about how uniform they are from the outside to the inside and oxygen content rather than, um, things that are more widely reported like charge or isoelectric points of carbons. So it's charge density, oxygen functionality, uh, more so than um, a negative positive electrostatic interaction. Now, previously you spoke about how ion exchange, I believe is 10 times more expensive when compared to GAC. Is that correct, first off? Yeah, it's on that order of magnitude. You know, I, again, any vendor would try to sell you out of it and. and you know, just like a cars are a little bit more expensive or not, right? But it's on that order of magnitude of, uh, of cost. So when compared to other types of uh, PFAS treatment technology, like reverse osmosis or polymeric sorbents or even ion exchange, what are the benefits of GAC? And is it all, you know, economical? Like, is it, is it all relating to money or is it more about uh, the chemistry as well? Well, okay, so if you think about it from the context of a, of a utility, you know, they charge people water rates and if they have to put in something, they have to pay for it. Uh, so, you know, economics drive it. Not all water utilities go on what's called a low bid. Uh, they can have performance attributes as well. So it's, they could have something that was really cheap, but if, um, if you had to replace it, you know, every month, that's a lot of work and a lot more room for, for error. So they can consider other things. And then cost. But, you know, so uh, I, I guess the first part of your question is, you know, um, why would they pick activated carbon instead of ion exchange? 
I, I let one thing is ion exchange gives you a different shape of a breakthrough curve. And if you don't have a lot of staff out monitoring things, you don't need to sample as much. And so if you don't need to sample as much, you don't need to pay $500 every time you collect a sample. So there might be some backend, you know, financial savings for things. Um, and then, you know, why would you pick activated carbon if it, you know, uh, is breaking through sooner? Well, activated carbon might just be, you might be able to regenerate it. And uh, here in Arizona, there's actually activated carbon regeneration facilities located nearby. So it, it really is a little bit more of a supply chain, you know, bidding, um, how available uh, competing bids can be, right? So if there's only one manufacturer of an ion exchange product that, uh, that removes PFOS efficiently, they know it and they know how to bid against an activated carbon system. So it becomes a very complicated kind of life cycle analysis. Um, how frequently are you replacing the media? What are the likely regulations gonna be by the time your facility's operating? Do you have advocates in your community who say you should have non-detectable levels, not only below a regulatory limit? So there's lots of different decisions someone's gonna to have to make before paying that uh, financial decision. And the chemistries are similar, but different, right? But they both rely upon a hydrophobic interaction with the adsorbent, as well as an electrostatic, you know, attraction to get it into the, these materials. Um, but, you know, beyond that, the mechanisms are, are quite different. Um, and then, you know, activated carbon can be thermally regenerated. Um, ion exchange, again, there's two different types, strong base, weak base, and so, you know, generally those are just for PFAS, it's going to be a single use and disposed to a, a landfill. Now that is in comparison to the other one that you asked, reverse osmosis. So reverse osmosis only separates it from your drinking water, uh, but it does a lot more. Um, it generates a lot of salty brine, right? So uh, in Arizona, you know, wasting 15 or 20% of the water in reverse osmosis is not much of a, a solution and you end up, end up with a salty brine. So, you know, the, the absorbents are definitely preferred in that context that they have a solid waste instead of liquid waste. Now, I know that the public awareness on PFAS has seemingly grown in recent years, you know, attributed to movies such as Dark Waters, increased congressional hearings on the matter, as well as increased coverage by various news outlets. So since you first got involved, how has PFAS research and environmental engineering evolved and has the public awareness on the subject uh, catalyzed this change? So, I mean, the, you know, the odd or funny thing you know, is so PFAS is not a new chemical, right? It's been used for a long time. You know, papers have been written about it for over 20 years. So within kind of my research group, we look at kind of what's in water, should we care about it, and how do we get it out? Right, and so there are different reasons then on, you know, should we care about it? And so, you know, new research in toxicology had really indicated that PFAS is something that you don't want in water. And a number of states have started making kind of regulations. And so in the environmental area, most of the time, it's a move at a state level or a federal level of a new regulation that actually necessitates work to be done. Very few water utilities will do research or do, you know, put in new technology 
just for the sake of something, because otherwise they would say, you know, people would keep going, well, you should just drink deionized distilled water, right? And it would be really expensive. So I, I think in the context of, you know, kind of why we worked on, on this paper, why was a new chemical I described, again, there was a regulatory motivation by an end user, but to me, intellectually or scientifically, PFAS is a very interesting group of chemicals, um, these surfactants. And one of the reasons why we haven't measured them easily in the past is that the analytical methods weren't really well suited to measure them. So I think PFAS is just a beginning, uh, tip of the iceberg of a class of surfactant-like molecules that we actually know very little about what's floating around out there, know very little about their toxicity, know very little about how to remove them. All right, thank you for your time. All right, good, good, great questions. Granular activated carbon, along with other technologies, are proven to be effective adsorbents in the removal of PFAS from water. However, the widespread usage of activated carbon to remove PFAS at water treatment plants has yet to come to fruition. And until it does, PFAS will remain in the drinking water for most Americans. In order to surmount this problem of widespread PFAS contamination, the federal government would have to play a key role. First and foremost, state and federal governments would have to invest in PFAS treatment options, such as activated carbon. Additionally, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency would need to set appropriate maximum contamination limits for fluorinated chemicals, in addition to regulating the use of PFAS chemicals in consumer products. These potential solutions wouldn't make PFAS vanish from our drinking water, but instead, it would mitigate the severity of contamination. But until that happens, it seems like the forever chemical will be here to stay. Thank you for listening. The following songs were used in the production of this podcast. Rain and Tears by Neutron Zero Five. Back Home by Ghost Rifter. Subtle Break by Ghost Rifter. Midnight Stroll by Ghost Rifter. Mellow Out by Ghost Rifter. And Hot Coffee by Ghost Rifter. This music is available to access on YouTube, Spotify, and SoundCloud. To access a transcript of this podcast with in-text citations and other references, visit tinyurl.com slash podcast.